I'd like for you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Verse 10 of chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. And this also is grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him? who toils for the wind. There ought to be a movie of that title, Toiling for the Wind. I, uh, my earliest recollection of greed uh, occurred when I was a little bitty little boy. And um, coming home or riding home on a school bus, way out in the country, get home late in the afternoon after school, so hungry, I would sell my birthright if I had one, for a cookie. And mother would have these fresh-baked cookies out on a table on wax paper. Now, mother had x-ray vision. I know she did, because she'd be off in another room, and I would, uh, my, my strategy was, one cookie for your mouth and two for each hand. And just about the time I would get two for each hand and one in the mouth, my mother, who could see through walls, would say, Now, Gerald, don't get greedy on me. A couple of cookies is enough. Maybe she didn't have x-ray vision. Maybe she just knew my nature. Reminded me of, uh, reminds me of a story about Philip Armour, who was the founder of Armour Meatpacking Company in Chicago. And one day, one time, a group of people within his company were doing extra well, so he decided he would let them all go down and pick out a suit of clothes, and he'd pay for it as a gift. And they all went down, and, and one guy... Uh, he got the most expensive evening clothes you could get. cost about twice as much as the others. When Philip Marmer went down to pay for it, he didn't say a thing. He said to the, as he wrote out a check, I've packed a lot of hogs in my life. This is the first time I've ever dressed one. Okay. <laughs> Webster has several definitions of greed. I picked two. Greed is an inordinate love of money and material things. And greed is desiring more than you need or deserve. Now, I need to tell you what greed is not. I have a friend in West Texas who loves to work. He doesn't need to work, but he loves to work. And he, like some of us, love uh, hobbies and, and love to fish and love to play sports. He just loves to work. 
Now, somebody might think that he was greedy, but he isn't. He just loves what he's doing. He loves the challenge of putting business deals together and that kind of thing, like some of you would love to go out fishing. And there are some people, I think, not not I, but some people have a God-given gift to make business deals work. That is a gift of God, really. Now, some of you have a talent to sing. Some of you have a talent to uh, play God. Some have a talent to fish believe it or not. I've never had that talent. I've been fishing where everybody caught a fish but me. I mean, they take my pole and catch fish, and I take their pole and never get a bite. There are some people just have a talent to do that, to, 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 to do business deals. Now, when a person resents somebody like that and accuses them of greed, they are resenting, really, what God has done in their life as a God-given talent. The man who wrote this book was the wealthiest and richest man who's ever lived. Now you would think that with wealth and wisdom, the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived, that with wisdom and with wealth, a man would be perfectly content that he would have everything you know, going for him in life. Exactly the opposite is true. This is the chronicle of a man who wasn't happy in life, was not content. It starts out with a phrase that occurs over and over again, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And, he, his, and, and this passage I read is really the focus of the heart of the philosophy of this man. And he says, in essence, why do we spend all of our time and our energy for something you throw to the wind? For a person comes into this world naked. He comes in with nothing. And that's exactly how he leaves. Now, I think that there are four reasons why people are motivated or driven to greed. One is, is that because society encourages it, fosters it. I mean, we're bombarded constantly with the motivation that you are to get things and that you deserve them. I mean, you only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto you can get. And we're constantly motivated and driven by this motivation society fosters greed. Have you seen the, the, the TV show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? And that show holds up an example to, uh, to us of what is possible in society. But it never asks the hard questions. It never asks, how many bodies are strewn along the road of people who pursue this? And how many marriages have been uh, abused? And how many children have been neglected? And how many... Friendships have been ignored in the pursuit of the rich and the famous. Have you seen that commercial? I know you have. American Airline commercial. And this guy has all of his employees together and his secretary is standing behind him with a handful of airline tickets. He said, we've just been fired today. Old friend of ours fired us, says he doesn't know us anymore said, we used to see one another on a face-to-face basis and we dealt with a handshake. And now we send a fax and we receive a fax. We were fired today by an old friend who says he doesn't know us anymore. He says, in essence, what I want us to do is I, I want us to get back to the basics of dealing with people on a personal relationship. Here are your tickets now. You get out there and meet those people face-to-face. And somebody said, where are you going, Fred? And he said, well, I'm going back to that old friend who says he doesn't know us anymore. Now, society doesn't say, come with me and I'll show you how to be greedy. 
Society says, come with me. I'll show you how to be successful, how to have financial security, how to live a good life. Society fosters it. I think some people are driven to greed because of envy. It's the result of what we do. It's what we do to try to suppress the feeling of of being unsuccessful compared to the people with whom we've chosen to compare ourselves. Have you ever noticed that we never compare ourselves with regard to things we have with some street person? I never heard anybody say, you know, oh, well, man, you know, here's this street person has to eat a soup kitchen, crawls in a box at night. We don't go home and get on our knees and say, Lord, I just thank you that I don't have to live like that and I'm so grateful that I have so much. We don't compare ourselves to that person. We compare ourselves to somebody who has much more than we have and we feel resentment and envy and jealousy of those people and we even are bitter about it sometimes. Somebody said, I've tried to catch up with the Joneses until they refinanced. And, and so we buy all these things that we, we, we call them comparison things and they're the things that we park in our driveways or we put in our houses so we can compare ourselves with somebody we deem successful and say to ourselves, we're as successful as they. I think third time, third reason why some are driven to greed is, is because of a lack or a conflict of attitude and expectations between husbands and wives. You can put faces to that. And when we have this conflict of expectation between husbands and wives, it causes marriages to be less than fun. It causes quarrels and arguments. And it may even cause one spouse to have to take a job because her, the, her spouse expects more from life. And it may cause a man to work really beyond his ability to work because there's such an expectation. And I think sometimes we're driven to greed in the fourth place to alleviate the, the anxiety we have about future security or insecurity. What will happen to me if I don't have enough saved up? When I can't work anymore, I can't get an income. What's going to happen to me when that happens? And it makes life difficult for us and makes us less than fun to live with. And when we begin to be obsessed with the insecurities of an insecure future, let me say parenthetically, that it would be unwise and foolish for a person not to prepare, have contingencies about the future. But when we become obsessed with that, something happens to us that we, with our giving and with our sharing and with our relationships, for when you become obsessed with the future, you have to mortgage the present. I remember Chaucer's poems. In Chaucer's poems, there's the partner's tale. It's about three guys who know where there's a buried treasure, where there's a gold treasure hidden. They decide it's time to go get it, but they're going to wait till darkness. They're going to wait till the cover of night so nobody will see them. In the meantime, the older ones send the younger one into town to buy some wine and bread for a celebration when they get their treasure. So he goes into town to get wine and bread, and the two guys are staying behind, and they engage in this conversation. You've already guessed it. Why cut this up three ways? Let's kill the guy. We'll just have to cut it two ways. And so they plan his murder. The other guy in town, he's in town getting wine and bread for the celebration. You know what he's thinking. Why do I have to share this with these other two? So he goes down to the apothecary, to the pharmacy, and gets some poison, puts it in two of the bottles of wine. When he gets back where they are, they engage this little scuffle and stab him. 
And when he's dead, they get one of the bottles of wine, you guess it has poison in it. One of them drinks half of it, hands it to his friend, he drinks the other half, and all three of them are dead. Nobody knows where the treasure is. I wonder where that treasure is. I, I wonder if they left any maps. That's greed gone crazy. And the Bible is replete with illustrations. I'm thinking of Ahab and Jezebel, wicked king and queen of Israel. And enter Naboth with his little vineyard, his little farmland that had been handed down from his parents, from his fathers and his father's fathers. And the, and the value of that land really was in the fact that it was handed down to him. But Ahab wanted it. And so he tried every means to get it, legitimate legal means. Finally he went whining to his wicked wife and said, I can't get his land. She said, who are you anyway? Aren't you the king? Take it. So he killed Naboth and he took it. And the succession is like this. He desired more than he needed. He had a kingdom. He wanted something he didn't deserve. That was handed down biblically to Naboth. But he took it and the end result was death. And I think of David looking on Bathsheba, lusting after her, and he took her. You know the rest of the story. He didn't need her. He had women. He didn't deserve her. She belonged to another man. But he took her anyway because he desired what he did not need, nor did he deserve. And the end result was death. Now there's a conclusion to this passage in Ecclesiastes. I want you to turn to it. It's found in 1 Timothy. I meant to say that when I started. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want you to turn to it, please. Now, you get, an old, you get a New Testament principle, you get an Old Testament illustration. So you got a new, an Old Testament illustration of a New Testament principle. I'm going to read chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and then you just hold a place, and I'm going to come back to the rest in just a moment. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, so we can't take anything out of it either. Does that sound familiar? That's what the author of the book, Ecclesiastes, said. Verse 8. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now that word shall does not mean we will. It's, it's a Greek word that has potential. We shall potentially be content. So point one, I want to say four things about the conclusion of what Ecclesiastes is about. Point one is this, is that we should be content if we have sufficient food and sufficient covering. We should be content. Now, I'm not talking about having no ambition or getting ahead in life. I've already talked about that in the beginning. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that some of us cannot be content unless we have a thousand and one things other than food and covering. The Epicureans were these Greek philosophers that had these cute little sayings, these powerful little sayings. I was looking through some of them the other day, and I chose three. Listen to them. To whom little is not enough, nothing will ever be enough. To whom little is not enough, nothing will ever be. Number two. Add not to one's possessions, rather take away from one's desires. Number three. Ask, who is content, he who has or he who, 
Let me back that up. Ask who is rich, he who has or he who is content with what he has. Now I've sufficiently murdered that one. <laughs> Ask not who is rich. Ask who is rich. <laughs> you want to say that for me? <laughs> you didn't get it? Ask who is rich, he who has, or he who is content with what he has. <laughs> You're loving it, aren't you? <laughs> Henry Thoreau said that a person is rich in proportion to what he can do without. A person is rich in proportion to what he can do without. And I heard of this little anecdote of a Quaker, old Quaker, who, who had learned to live a simple lifestyle, and he was watching one day as his neighbor moved in, and he was bringing all this stuff in that we have to have in order to be contented. And finally, the old Quaker went over and said, Neighbor, if thou ever hast a need, come to see me, and I will tell thee how to do without it. The Scripture says that a person takes two things to God. He takes his naked self. He takes himself. Nothing in his hands, just his naked self. If I have to present myself to God, I need to begin to build a self to present to God. I would not be ashamed of. And the second thing we present to God is what we have done with the relationship we have entered into with Him. In other words, we present to God what we've done with this relationship, how we've built it up. C.S. Lewis said, fear the one who is able to ask the questions. Oh, man. The world calls of my religion, what have you done with it? What have you done with this relationship to which you have committed your life? How have you built it up? What is it like? How much are you grown? Have you, have you grown? All right? Second thing we need to say about this verse, this passage. And that is that it is so easy in the pursuit of things to drift away from the faith. Now look at verse 10. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. I want you to know that, 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 that those of us who are greedy live in an illusionary world, and the greatest illusion that we have is, is that the more we have, the more we can give. Now come on, fess up. Haven't you prayed to God, so ask, haven't you asked God to let you win the Publishers Clearinghouse jackpot. I'm, I, I remember when times were tougher. <laughs> Praying, Lord, true story, if you'll let me win the Publishers Clearinghouse jackpot, I'll give you 20%. <laughs> now, I, I wasn't thinking about 20%. I was thinking about 80% goes in my pocket. We live in this illusionary world. Lord, if you'll just let me be rich, I can give more. Listen to me, hear me. If you don't give now, you will not give if you're a millionaire. And if you don't love your family or your children enough to spend time with them now, 
You will not spend time with them even if you become independently wealthy and don't have to work. Because the issue is not what we have or don't have. In the pursuit of things, we are drawn away from the the faith, he calls it. Number three, the pursuit of things tends to make us incredibly selfish. Look at verse 11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And he's talking about those things that relate to relationships because something happens to us when we're in pursuit of things that causes us to, to, to withdraw from one another. It causes not care about our children like we should care about them. It causes us to, move, to, to draw away from our relationship with our husband or our wife. It causes us to, to draw away from, from one another, to become distrustful of one another. In, in the Bible, idolatry is not bowing down to statues. In the Bible, idolatry is worshiping self as the supreme value. And so we have this self over here and we worship the self and it causes us to to forget about others that we need to know and remember. Makes us incredibly selfish. And verse 18 gives us the fourth. It says, what he says in verse 18 is that we need to begin to be rich in good works, in good works. When I was working on this, I thought of Mr. Dobbins. That old man didn't have much. Poor little old guy just... Looked like he didn't have enough to eat. I mean, he just, poor little man. When I preached his funeral here, this room, there's some of you I could ask you to hold your hands and you'd hold up your hands. In this room, there were all these young, dynamic men, young men, that had been tutored and nurtured by this old fellow. Eagle Scouts, over a hundred of them. I accepted an award for him in San Antonio, Texas at the Southern Baptist Convention. It had only been given to three other men in the United States of A, and one of them was Jimmy Carter. And here this little guy who was rich in good works. Now, I want to give you four suggestions, practical suggestions, how not to be greedy. Lest your mother catches you with an extra cookie. How not to be greedy. Number one, Decide what is enough and stick to it. Decide what is enough and stick to it. Is this enough for me to live comfortably? My family, my children and my children's children, decide what's enough. You know the story Alice in Wonderland. You may not know that, that the original Alice in Wonderland is a, was a story called Looking Through a Looking Glass. Through a Looking Glass. And the Walt Disney uh, has these characters, but there was one character that Walt Disney doesn't have. It was in the, in the original story. It was a knight, K-N-I-G-H-T, on White Horse. And this guy thought, well, he had every contingency covered. He, he carried around a beehive in case he came up on some bees, and he carried around a bowl in case somebody wanted to give him some pudding. And he had his horse shod and, and surrounded with, with armor, with shields, in case there was a shark attack. Tell me how that's going to happen. And, and he had every contingency covered, but the problem was the old horse couldn't move. I mean, because the whole weighted down with stuff, the horse couldn't go. And I think sometimes that we can get our lives so cluttered with contingencies that we just grind to a halt. Second thing, 
It's what you've been waiting on, what you've been expecting. Here it is. Begin a systematic program of giving. Place to start is the tithe. That service this morning was so dynamic, and a young lady came forward. She said, Gerald, I've been struggling with tithing all of my life. I teach my children to tithe. But I want to make a commitment to God. I want to begin to tithe. Now, there are reasons why a person should tithe, but the main reason is because God told us that. That's the main reason. But there's some pragmatic reasons why we should tithe. One is, is because of what it will do for the kingdom of God if every one of us should tithe. It is an absolute disgrace that a church is crippled because its membership will not tithe. Let me give you a startling statistic. If every evangelical Christian had his salary reduced to welfare status, he got on welfare, and those evangelical Christians who had their salaries reduced to welfare began to tithe, there would be a 35% increase in giving. That is astounding. Not just because of what it for God and for His kingdom, but because of what it will do for you. There is something that happens when a person is obedient to God. You remember when Abraham took the offering, uh, Isaac up to offer him on a sacrifice, as a sacrifice on an altar, and God said, Now I know, now I know there's something happens when a person is obedient to God. And God's this kind of a now I know kind of response from God. He says, I, I know he can be trusted, I'm going to bless him. Now sometimes those blessings come in the material world, but I'm not prepared to stand here and tell you today that if you were to start tithing, God will bless you physically materially. But I will tell you that those blessings will come in the realm of the spiritual. I'm prepared to do that. And this tithing is a systematic way. It's a storehouse giving. By that I mean that a person brings that tithe into God's storehouse, with the, which is the church, and the church has its ministers to administer that money. And let me say a word about these ministers that we have in our church. I have never known a finer group of men I have never in my life, I don't stand up and brag on people. You've already caught on to that. I've never met, I have never worked with guys any more uh, committed than these guys. They got their faults. I'll tell you about those at another time. But uh, hey, I'll I, I, I tell you, you can trust them so that whatever they do with the money that comes into God's storehouse as a minister and administer of that money, well, I promise you this, it'll be because of what they believe to be the best that God can get and use of it. You need to trust them. That means bring this to the storehouse. And if we can't trust them, can't trust me, we can get somebody we can. Systematic giving to God and His work. Third, you need to stop judging other people about their possessions. You need to stop saying, that person can't afford that. I bet he's mortgaged to the hill. You need to stop saying what you and I are guilty of saying. I bet he got his money by cheating somebody. You need to stop that. We need to stop judging others about their possessions. And number four, if you've wronged anybody by greed, you need to make up for it. If you've wronged your government, you need to make up for it. If you've wronged your church and the cause of Christ, you need to make up for it. If you have cheated your children out of valuable and precious time, you need to make up for it. You need to go home today and say, I'm sorry. You need to talk to that wife and say, I've neglected you in the pursuit of things. I'm sorry. 
I want to make it right. When Jesus went in that room with Zacchaeus in that little rendezvous which had been established from the foundation of the world, and he went in there, that little room with Zacchaeus, and they came out, Zacchaeus said, If I have wronged any man, I want to restore what I have wronged fourfold. Of course he'd wronged. People. That's how he made his money. He was a thief. He was a cheat. He was a publican. He was a tax gatherer. Of course he had. If I've wronged anybody, I'll restore four times what I've taken and I'll give half of what I have to the poor. Something happened in that room. And all of a sudden this greedy man stopped being greedy. And all of a sudden this man who was had a cookie in both hands and one in his mouth, decided there's something he needed to do to make it right. And what he did was to change the way he looked at life. Gerald, don't get greedy on me. Two cookies is enough now. Would you pray with me? Our Father, will be the response that you planned for us. For I pray in Jesus' holy name. Now I know it's not easy and come and say after a sermon on processions to say I want to give my life to Jesus Christ but I have seen that done and I, have, I do believe that when God convicts us of our need to give our life to Him He convicts us at the point of at the level where we have the hardest place hardest time surrendering I want you to come this morning, if you're not a Christian, to the place where you can say, Jesus, here's my life. I, I want to turn from the way that I am and been to you. I want you to save me. Be in control of my life. Take this throne room as yours. You, want, you may want to come this morning as this lady came in here the service. Just true story. Came forward to say, I haven't been doing right. I want to begin to do what God's told me to do. What I've told my kids to do. Or maybe you just need to come today to join the church fellowship of this group. I'm proud to be a part of this. I'm proud to be the pastor of this church. There's never been a single day that I've regretted being the pastor of this church. Doesn't mean I don't get discouraged. But there's never been a day that I felt that I came to the wrong place. And the reason I feel that way is because you dear people are sensitive to God. And maybe some of you sense that and you want to be a part of this church fellowship. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.